Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagama Lark. Today, we're going to be taking a break from Frederick the Great and examining one of his contemporaries' works, which is to say, Napoleon, for whom an entire series of wars was named after. So between his skill as a commander and his ego as a politician, this is a fascinating individual who perceived truths about war that were hidden to many. Now, a lot of the conclusions that he comes to are similar to what we were studying with Clausewitz, because Clausewitz, of course, was dealing with the same technology, was dealing with the same kind of tactics, the same unit composition that Napoleon was. But there are a few key differences that I think are definitely worth pointing out. So I'm very much looking forward to this. And this is going to be different than the other books that we've done, where I've done the reading myself and then taken notes and kind of extrapolated because, you know, it it all kind of comes together and it's good to establish an overall theme. These ones, because they're maxims, are written out one at a time, little, little blurbs. And so instead, we're going to go through these one by one. And I'm going to read to you directly what Napoleon said in English, obviously. I've, I know we have a few listeners in France, but the majority of you are, are English speakers by my estimation, so I won't make you go and get an English to French dictionary or French to English dictionary or either. So that's that's kind of the plan for this particular episode and probably a, a, a several following because I thought that it might be nice to take a break. I mean, Clausewitz is great. His analytical mind, the way that he applies himself, the detail that he goes into is exquisite when it comes to studying war. That being said, we've been studying this book for a while now. So uh, a little change up. Nice for me. Nice for you. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. But firstly, I want to talk about my last two games that I had. Both were against Psyker Heavy Armies. One was against my buddy Toto and his Grey Knights. One was against my friend Kaji and his Thousand Sons. So both of them, of course, heavy psyker armies. I was taking my word bearers, who do have a natural defense against these psyker armies, because, of course, they've got that five up in uh, Feel No Pain currently against mortal wounds. So there's a good chance of of negating a decent number of, of shots, a decent number of pain things coming in from these very, very, very psyker heavy and often psyker dependent armies. So the first one ended in brutal brutal loss, because my army composition was not to the best of advantage. I have been coming from a Dark Angel perspective, and so sometimes doing Dark Angel things with other armies. But the the problem is, what works with the Dark Angels doesn't work with others, because, you know, glory to the first. 
And there's a different reason for doing things. Dark Angels, of course, get a bonus to standing their ground, get a bonus to receiving the enemy. Uh, that, that is actually a huge advantage that they have. Whereas the Word Bearers are about getting to the enemy, making sure that you get in your enemy's face. And so what I did in my first game against Toto, uh, which was my mistake, is I took a huge brick of Terminators. And I mean, I kitted them out. Black Room to Damnation. Um, I think they were Nurgle. I think I, I put Nurgle stuff on them, like a Mark of Nurgle. So they were thick. These are some very thick boys that I was setting up uh, to go to the very middle of the field. And then I had some, some lighter units on the wings that were supposed to go in and kind of do cav work. Well, I was impatient with my cav, which is often the case. One of the big hangups that I have as a player is that I often waste my cavalry in these pointless charges that, yeah, they might gain a little bit of ground or they might gain a little bit of, of an advantage for a moment, but they're easily thwarted by, by very minor changes from my opponent's strategy. And so I really do need to listen to Clausewitz and Napoleon when they talk about how to use cav and how to use the various detachments of your army and, and groups of your army in a way that makes sense with the way it works. So that first one was, was terrible. The points were massively on Toto's side. I think I ended up tapping out halfway through the, the third round because I was just at such a disadvantage. I mean, there was, there was no way for me to make it up in points. And, and the problem was that I had slogged toward the center and made a, a target of myself. And those Terminators are not nearly as thick as their Deathwing counterparts. And then again, my, my flanks moved forward and they were largely ineffective because they were just blown off the board because they were unsupported and not supporting. So the thing I learned from that is that that solid defense, going for a solid defense with the word bearers isn't what they're meant to do because they get bonuses for getting into combat and for, you know, once they initiate combat or have combat initiated, they get to reroll all hits. So between that and the five up feel no pain against mortal wounds, I was playing them wrong. And so the second game with Kaji, I absolutely had learned my lesson. And instead of doing a 10-man brick of Terminators in the center, I did a 10-man brick of Possessed. Same thing. Put a Black Rune of Damnation on them. Uh, you can't give a mark to them because they're already demonic in the first place. So there they are. T5. Neg 1 to wound. And have this aura around them that makes Psychers uh, experience bad things. You stack that with the Master of Possession. This was a combo. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't actually pick this combo out on purpose. It just sort of came, because a Master of Possession really does well with any sort of demonic army. But he has an ability that allows, anytime there's a Psyker that takes a mortal wound anywhere nearby from, like, Perils of the Warp or anything, they take an extra one. So between the Black Rune of Damnation saying that all doubles, not just ones and uh, sixes, but all doubles equal a Perils, and then stacking that on there, it's actually quite a good combo against Psyker armies, because, I mean, when you're rolling that much, it is likely that you're going to roll doubles other than sixes and ones. So that worked out all right, and so I, br I brought up my flanks, of course, the Possessed pushed up the center, because I was doing Exalt the Dark Gods, which is an easy way for word bearers to make some points. They just have to get to the center of the board. And then I came up quickly with two flanks. Uh, we had Legionnaires on both sides, and I had Raptors on both sides. And he had brought Rubrics. Two or three just big old bricks <laughs> of rubrics and Ariman and oh my goodness, I can't forget remember. There was somebody else who was really, really powerful in there too. But yeah, it was basically just Ariman and a two or three bricks of these rubric marines, which are brutal. I mean, they're bolters. 
you know, they're kind of like normal bolters, except that they have massive AP. So they're punching through you. And so if you're using things that, that can, you know, that don't have invulns, like raptors and legionnaires, well, they just get torn apart by, by this fire. And mine did. You know, he concentrated his fire in that second round against my two flanks that were coming up. He did not know what was coming up the center. Because I don't think he'd ever faced possessed, or at least a, a, a brick of really kitted out possessed. And so I'm putting things on him from the, you know, the chaplain. Actually, I made a murder chaplain, so check this out. But this chaplain had exalted possession, which gives you plus one attack, plus one strength, and plus one wound, right? Mark a corn on him gives him an additional attack when he's getting in there and, and getting fierce. And then you give him this exalted crozius, which says anytime he hits, it automatically wounds. And it is absolutely, oh, this is against infantry, of course, not monsters or vehicles. And so it just becomes this, this monstrous thing that you're coming in and hitting with. And of course, he's also angry. So I'm chanting things on him to give him boosts, for instance, uh, omen of potency, which gives him an additional three attacks, additional three attacks. They're almost guaranteed to wound. It's nuts. Yeah. I, I brought him in and he, he bonked Arimon good. That was quite satisfying to just have my, my regular old dark, dark apostle just go in and just heave in. So I got into him, you know, the possessed got into him, the, uh, my chaplain or my, uh, uh, dark apostle got into him. My master of possession kind of hung back and was doing the prayers on that center objective. I had a thing of cultists that were back holding my very far objective. I've realized that 50 points for just holding that back objective, great deal. That is a great deal, especially when legionnaires themselves are like 90 points. So cultist, if you can hide them, way better in the back line there. And so I ate him. My possessed just dug into him and ate him. And I, of course, was able to bring back possessed with the ability, um, the pact of flesh that the um, master of possession has. And it was just brutal. I just, I just ate my way through his army. And of course, he's sitting there being like, I needed to pay more attention to those possessed. They were way more dangerous. But it worked so much better than the Terminators because it played to the strengths of the word bearers. And I wasn't just trying to take tactics from one army and apply it to another. So I learned a valuable lesson and I hope through my, oh crap, 10 minutes of rambling that you, you learned from it as well. So both were excellent games. I'm looking forward to that rematch, Toto. I know you listen. So I'm looking forward to that rematch soon. You're going to experience a whole new level of badness coming from this army because I'm learning how to use it. Well, yeah, I think got those games in. Oh, uh, Astygia started doing practices intermittently again. We've been able to get in there. Of course, uh, this is the thing with conditioning, y'all. You got to stay with it. If you want to remain a top fighter, this is to my fighters. If you want to remain a, a top fighter or continue your way up, we have to condition ourselves, you know, do a little bit of weights work, do pal work, do cardio. And then we also have to listen to our bodies. You know, I have a, a an elbow and there's a little connective point on the elbow tip there. And I had, I had made it mad the other day. I think I, I clipped it against something in the shower and it just started to kind of hurt. And I kept doing stuff on it. And I was realizing that, you know, this, this injury was actually kind of sticking with me. So I went to practice cause I was feeling okay. And within the first five minutes, I just feel, feel this heat flare, pow, go through my elbow. And it didn't hurt necessarily. And I think part of that is because going in the army, your, your brain learns how to compartmentalize pain. But I definitely noticed it. And I thought to myself, I said, you know, if I stop right now and take some ibuprofen, I can probably mitigate the damage or I can do what I did. 
<laughs> which was fine all day on it. And it was fine throughout the day because, again, adrenaline is a, is a great pain suppressant. Amazing. So I'm fighting on that. Of course, I got all the other good juices going on, the serotonin, the dopamine, endorphins, all that sort of thing. And then I get home. And that was uh, a little over a week ago. And I've still got a compression brace on my arm. I'm still icing it regularly. I'm still driving up the stock of ibuprofen. I did not listen to my body and I am paying the price for it. So you young people, you in your teens and early twenties or whatever, you might be able to get away with it now, but eventually you're going to get over 30 and you're going to get to a place where you need to both condition yourself and listen to your body. Otherwise we walk away because we don't bounce. We don't bounce no more. <laughs> so, oh, learn from me y'all. Adopt your tactics differently to abide by the, the constraints of your new army and listen to your body before you end up hurting yourself. If I can't listen to this good advice of myself, I might as well share it with y'all. But I think that's enough of me just jaw jacking. So I think it's a good time for us to transition into talking about some of these military maxims of Napoleon. Real quick before we get going here, I did want to apologize to y'all for the crazy release schedule that we've had. Normally we're pretty good about putting it out every two weeks, but you know, life gets crazy sometimes. The plan, as we say, doesn't always match up to what the enemy is doing. And so we've just, you know, obviously it's been a little rocky with the release schedule, but just want to let you know that we're still here. We're still absolutely committed to this. It just might be a second until it stabilizes again. But until then, really appreciate your patience. And thank you so much for, you know, listening as usual. All right, so let's get into this though. So I'm going to read out of this and we're just going to kind of talk a little bit about each of these maxims, kind of one by one, and what they mean in terms of history and in terms of wargaming. So let's Let's have some fun with this, shall we? And if you guys have different interpretations, if you're, if you're sitting there and you're like, oh my goodness, I, uh, you know, I think, I think something differently about this. I'm hopefully beginning, going to be getting the release meme out here pretty quick. So if you guys want to have a conversation in the comments of that and say, Hey, you know, I, I was hearing this maxim and I thought this thing, you know, we, we can have a chat about it. So consider that. So we're going to read directly from the maxims of Napoleon. All right, our first one is, the frontiers of nations are either large rivers or chains of mountains or deserts. Of all these obstacles to march of an army, deserts are the most difficult to surmount. Mountains comes next, and large rivers hold only the third rank. It's interesting that he mentions deserts. None of our other authors from Europe really mention deserts, and it's because you're going to be hard-pressed to find a proper desert in Europe, which is where most of them, were. we didn't have the, the worldwide uh, fights that we, that we do now. It's not going to be up until you start to see the occupations that we really start to be able to talk about those things. But at this time, the wars that were being fought were, these were books written for Europe, for European wars. And so it's interesting that he brings this up because if you, if you know anything about Napoleon, you know that he did fight in the desert, that he did uh, do some, some campaigning down in Africa. So he's got a perspective here that others don't. And I think he's absolutely correct in saying, Hey, the, the hardest one of these to cross is a desert. No doubt. 
you know, trying to make sure that people stay cool, trying to make sure that everybody has water, or you have this long wagon train that's trying to wind its way across. Yeah, that sounds miserable. Just miserable. Desert fighting. I mean, I've, I've absolutely had brothers and sisters who went over and fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm sure they'd tell you the same, that de deserts suck <laughs> to operate in, no doubt. Mountains, of course, uh, have their own obstacles. They have their own set of rules, as we've been studying in Clausewitz. And then large rivers, which is something that we're going to come back to when we come back to our study of Clausewitz, this idea of rivers being obstacles. And they're fairly easy to cross. I mean, if you can put together pontoons or if you can find a ford, you know, rivers are not as easy as open plains. But when compared to deserts and mountains, yeah, they're, they're much easier to cross. And these are great uh, nation dividers, borders of nations, because they have a clear demarcation of where things are. It's not just a line on a map. It's, okay, our nation ends at these mountains or at this river. And especially back in the times when they were writing, and previously, that was a fairly good anchor for where that, that nation's border will be. Now, once again, they start divvying things up in the Middle East, which is what they did like in, in World War I, you start to see lines that make absolutely no sense and go along no geographical or political or cultural line that it makes any sense to the people who are in the area. But that's a discussion for another time. Our second maxim is a plan of campaign should anticipate everything which the enemy can do and contain within itself the means of thwarting him. Plans of campaign may indefinitely be modified according to the circumstances, the genius of the commander, the quality of the troops, and the topography of the theater of war. It's a long way of saying that, like, you can try to plan for everything, but you also have to plan for the unexpected. It's, it's good to look ahead and be like, okay, what is my enemy capable of? What kind of uh, gear do they have? What sort of troop numbers do they have? You know, what are they capable of? How can I anticipate what they might do? But, as he says, they have to be indefinitely modified according to the circumstances. And then, you know, what, what a commander might see. We're going to talk again about the idea of Kudel, this ability to see what is in front of you almost immediately. And that is a part of the genius of the commander. And then, you know, the quality of troops is, is huge for determining what capability our own army has and how we can thwart them with our troops. Are they well-equipped? Are they well-rested? Do they have good morale? These are all questions that will modify whatever plans we might have. And then topography. We always have to adjust to whatever is there, the obstacles that are in our way, the landmarks that might be able to demarcate something out, uh, these are all good things, too. Number three. An army invading a country may either have its two wings resting on neutral counties, countries, or on a great natural obstacle such as rivers or chains of mountains, or it may have only one of its wings thus supported, or both may be without support. In the first case, a general has only to see that his line is not broken in front. In the second case, he must rest on the wing which is supported. The third case, he must keep his different corps resting well on the center and never allow them to separate from it. For if it is a disadvantage to have two flanks in the air, the inconvenience is doubled if there are four, tripled if there are six, and that is to say, if an army is divided into two or three distinct corps. The line of operations in the first case may rest on the left or the right wing indifferently. In the second case, it should rest on the wing which is supported. In the third case, it should fall perpendicularly on the middle of the line formed by the army in marching. But in all cases, 
above mentioned, it is necessary to have every five or six days march a fort or entrenched position where magazines of provisions and military stores may be established and convoys organized, and which may also serve as a center of motion and a point of supply and thus shorten the line of operations. I understand that that was a honker, so let's kind of work our way through that one. So when we're invading a place, if we're the ones on the offensive, which is almost always what Napoleon is going to advocate, then we have a choice in how we position our army. If we have both of our wings resting on a, some sort of natural position, we can operate in the center and have secure lines of communication on, on both sides. And so, you know, in this particular case, you know, later on, he's talking about where we need to rest, where we need to have our kind of our base of operations. And he really has to see that his line is not broken in front. If you have a, a secure thing on both sides, then really the center is what we need to worry about, right? And that's, that's kind of what he's saying here. And then when you've got those two centered things, if you've got a, a line of communications or a line of operations, that can run directly from. It doesn't matter which one, whichever one is more advantageous, whichever one is closer to your country or your main base of operations, I suppose, would be the, the big one there. And then when we're talking about the, the line of operations, of course, it's extending backwards. And that perpendicular thing is going to come in handy here in a minute. So the second one is when we only have one flank on something, uh, like resting on somewhere. And this is fairly common. Like when I've been fighting in Belagarth, it is fairly common for especially the side that is moving up to really use that flank to their advantage, to really use that, that natural edge of the world to kind of operate from and know that they're, they're secure in that area as long as it's not hit particularly hard. And this is nice. It allows for a greater freedom of motion, but of course you throw away some defense when you do so. And the line of operation, of course, extends back from the, the one connected place. You don't want it out in the air. Now, if we're marching and we don't have neither of our wings anchored, and we're just kind of moving through the country, he says it is very important to stay close together. We do not want to be singled out and destroyed in a way because, because we're spread out and because we don't have the support that we need from the rest of the army. And so the idea of keeping everything together and then that line of operation, that line of communication needs to head straight back from the center and needs to not, not go to side to side, but have it straight back from the kind of the line of movement. And as we're going along, we're thinking about logistics too. We're making sure that we have places to fall back to, that we have provisions and you know, a, a cantonment as well as, so, you know, we have these camps, but we also have maybe a more fortified position that we can operate from. And these things are important because while we don't want to plan on retreat, it is absolutely a possibility. And of course, this also makes it easier to transport. You don't have wagons of material going from the capital of your province all the way forward to where the army's at. That's ridiculous. But having these stores along the way makes it far more efficient and far more reliable in order to get places. Okay, let's see here. Let's go to number four. It may be laid down as a principle that in invading a country with two or three armies, each of which has its own distinct line of operations extending toward a fixed point at which all to or are to unite, the union of the different corps should never be ordered to take place in the vicinity of the enemy, as by concentrating his forces he may not only prevent their junction, but also defeat them one by one. This is a good thing to remember, 
but I also kind of feel like it's a little bit of a no-brainer if you really think about it. If you're if you're not thinking about it, the distraction might be terrible. But if we're you know if we're having a rally point, if we've got different places that we're, we're, we've got a place where we need to concentrate our forces together, we want to make sure that we can do that without our enemy being able to interfere with that. Absolutely. I mean, there, I don't think there's anybody who would disagree <laughs> with this particular statement because again, if the enemy singles one or the other out while they're trying to come together like this. It can be, I mean, obviously not good for our forces. We don't want that. Number five, all wars should be systematic for every war should have an aim and be conducted in conformity with the principles of rules of an art. War should be undertaken with forces corresponding to the magnitude of the obstacles that are going to be anticipated. Again, this is, I mean, it's, it's well-spoken, but it's pretty pretty ideal. I believe in canned tactics. You know, the idea that if you find out that something works, find out that a move works, you kind of find a way to make that particular tactic work. You change the other circumstances, you bring things together in order for that canned tactic, that, that one that you know works, to work. Uh, a great example for fighters is a lot of the best fighters I know have really only have two or three places that they hit frequently but they have an infinite number of ways to get at those places. You know, they've practiced that hip scoop or they've practiced that high cross and they've got it down to an art, but they might throw different shots in other ways to set that up. But those are the, the main things that they're after. So if we find what we're, what we're good at, for instance, the word bearers taking, you know, a bunch of possessed into the center, beefing them out and using that as the point to do the exalted gods. Well, at that point we are absolutely using a, a system, a system, a, a pre-planned thing that will obviously need to be modified in the presence of the enemy, but also is something that we know we can kind of depend on. And we know that we will depend on through, you know, this systematic thing. Because every war has an aim. You know, we're looking to conquer something. We're looking to take territory. In our cases, we're looking to usually eliminate our enemy entirely. And it's conducted in the formity with the principles and rules of that art. And of course, a war should be undertaken with forces corresponding the magnitude. You don't want to look over there and be like, well, I don't think my army can take that. It would be like coming to a, a 2000 point Warhammer 40 K match with only a thousand point army. Like, why would you do that? That's silly. So the war needs to be to the magnitude that you need to, to win. Number six, at the commencement of a campaign, the question whether to advance or not requires careful deliberation. But when you have once undertaken the offensive, it should be maintained to the last extremity. A retreat, however skillful the maneuvers may be, will always produce an injurious moral effect on the army, since by losing the chances of success yourself, you throw them into the hands of the enemy. Besides, retreats cost far more, both in men and materiel, than most bloody engagements, with this difference in that a battle the enemy loses nearly as much as you do, while in a retreat, the loss is all on your side. I understand what he's saying here, in particular when we're dealing with situations that involve cavalry and uh, artillery. You know, if we've moved forward and we've in engaged the enemy, that limits the artillery's power to engage us because they're not going to want to hit their own people. So we're not we're, we're really just doing infantry on infantry here. The cavalry might be in engaged otherwise, but the second we start to fall back, the second we retreat. And a retreat is different than a tactical like fallback, but if we're retreating back to a point, we're breaking our lines of cohesion for the most part. And in this time, what Clausewitz would recommend, and I think what Napoleon is hinting at, is pursuit. 
the, the strength of the calf in the pursuit. And so if we're falling back and, you know, it doesn't matter how measured it is, there's always a, a, a part of panic. You know, the, the, I don't think a single army has started to fall back because they felt good. You know, there's, there's a matter of panic in it too, when they're falling back. And so that can be capitalized on the enemy's cavalry can move forward and harry the attack, take down stragglers. Of course, the artillery now has the ability to reach out. And this is, this is no real different in you know, 40k in particular, because once you're invested as a melee attacker, it is not a great idea to pull back unless you have the ability to do so without any sort of recompense, because leaving combat makes us via, uh, open to being shot again. And so making sure that we sustain where we can sustain and how we can sustain is important. And obviously completely sad. He's just the last extremity. So obviously we're not looking to completely extinguish our army in the effort, but also the, the, the moral impact of an army, like a larger army like this needing to fall back and the lack of confidence that that inspires in the men, you know, in something like bell, you know, if we fall back and we get murdered, we come back the next time and that might, you know, light a fire under us that makes us want to try harder. But in real war, you don't come back. And really, it is better to press forward. If, if you can punch through the enemy, that is obviously the best way to do things rather than, you know, having to fall back and having everything be very vulnerable as we do so. Our next one, number seven. An army should be every day, every night, and every hour, ready to offer all of the resistance of which it is capable. It is necessary, therefore, that the soldiers should always have their arms and ammunition at hand, that the infantry should always have it with it, with it its artillery, cavalry, and generals, that different divisions of the army should always be in a position of support to assist and protect each other, that whether encamped, marching, or halted, the troops should always be in an advantageous position, possessing the qualities required for every field of battle. That is to say, the flanks should be well supported and the artillery placed so that they may be brought into play. When the army is in column of march, there is to be advance guards and flank guards to observe the enemy's movement in front, on the right, and on the left, and at sufficient distances to allow the main body of the arm to deploy and take its, up its position. <laughs> That's the end of it right there. Um, yeah, be ready. Number seven is be ready. That's the big one. You know, if, if we're on the field, we want to have our arms at hand. And this one doesn't apply as much to war gaming as it does to actual war. And this was something that we did in the army. Like when you were in basic training, they wanted you to get used to this. So you carried your rifle everywhere. It, it came with you into the mess hall. It went with you uh, during most exercises. The only time that you put it down was to do PT that had nothing to do with it. Or if you were going to the bathroom, you might have one of your buddies hold on to it. But when you slept, it was there with you at all times, ready to go. And so having everything set up, ready to go. Napoleon says, don't take chances. You know, if you get caught unawares, you want to make sure that we have the best ability to respond, that we're not trying to set up our artillery before or while the enemy is attacking, or that we're not trying to get our ammunition together and find our weapons while the enemy is attacking and having the pickets out there, these, these advanced positions where you can kind of scout and have information of what is in front of you kind of pierced through that fog of war is really important. And so basically what he's saying is always be ready, always be ready to be hit. Like we have our plan. We might want to get to this particular place, but we have to understand that surprise is a thing. 
and we need to be ready to anticipate it and move to the best of our ability to make ready for war so that when our opponent does get to us, they find a fully prepared force instead of just a force that is you know, trying to get itself together. In the Battle of the Wilderness, there was a, a repositioning that caused a, a complete panic. The, the opposing army was there in the morning. They were getting, you know, they were shaving. They were having breakfast. Everybody was just kind of lounging because they thought that their enemy was on the other side of the, uh, of the theater. They didn't know they were right there. And then suddenly, boom, they start rolling up. And these guys, they were not prepared. The artillery, th there was so much artillery that was taken. So much artillery because they were not prepared in any way to use it effectively. So this is important. Always battlefield readiness. Number eight. A general should say to himself many times a day, if the hostile army were to make its appearance in front, on my right, or on my left, what should I do? And if he is embarrassed, if his arrangements are bad, there is something wrong, and he must rectify this mistake. The idea of constantly being in critique of oneself, of examining our place on the board or on the field or in real life, anticipating this idea of, okay, well, what if this happens? What, what can my response be? Or what, what if this happens? What can my response be? A lot of times in real life, you can drive yourself crazy with this because a lot of times it's over like, okay, well, what will he say? What will this person say? And that's, that, that's a great way to cause anxiety. That's a great way to kind of go out of your mind a little bit. But when we're dealing with something as serious as war, and when we're dealing with something that you can focus on like a game, and you know your opponent's capabilities, right? Okay, I know I'm going against Eldar. How can I anticipate X, Y, and Z? Or, okay, I'm going against God Squad. How can I anticipate X, Y, and Z? And so knowledge of our enemy really makes this uh, what we can do. Because if, if we don't have knowledge of our enemy, how can we anticipate what they're going to do on our right flank or our left flank or our center? And so knowledge of our enemy and anticipation of the idea of what they might do is important. And this relates to that last maxim too, number seven, about readiness. So we're not just ready in, in like position. We're not just ready with our stuff on us, but we're also ready mentally saying, okay, what if? And making sure that we can shore it up because there there is no reason to not go into this as prepared as possible, I guess is what I'm saying. <clears throat> Number nine, the strength of an army, like the momentum in mechanics, is estimated by the weight multiplied by the velocity. A rapid march exerts a beneficial moral influence on the army and increases its means of victory. I take us back to that, that example I just used from the American Civil War, when they were able to maneuver and strike that hard. They didn't know they were there. And there was a numeric disadvantage at all times uh, between a lot of these armies, and in particular the Confederate ones. And so striking with surprise is important. It was very important by any means, and particularly in this particular case. So that rapid march increases victory because it means that we can strike where our opponent isn't necessarily expecting us. And then the rest of it makes sense. You know, Clausewitz stresses constantly the importance of numbers in these sorts of conflicts and in most conflicts. And so if we do, you know, that, that force times mass equals acceleration, right? That's the, oh my goodness, I haven't done physics in forever. Or mass times acceleration equals force. I think that's the one. Regardless, they act in conjunction together. And so if we have a large force moving quickly, that hurts. That hurts a lot. And so having that mobility is nice. And I mean, a large, large force can be at times ungainly. 
And so that starts to take back. And like in a, um, when we were studying Machiavelli, he was talking about how there, there are maximum sizes for armies. That you don't want to go beyond a logistical ability to control that army or manage the army. And so that does limit us with our numbers. But we do want to bring as many to bear as possible. Okay. When your army is inferior in numbers, inferior in cavalry and in artillery, a pitched battle should be avoided. The want of numbers must be supplied by rapidity of the marching, a want of artillery by the character of the maneuvers, the inferiority in cavalry by the choice of positions. In such a situation, it is of great importance that the confidence should prevail amongst the soldiers. And so, of course, this is, this is the idea of like, okay, how are we deficient? What, what are we not capable of and how do we mitigate that? And so if we're inferior of numbers, that mobility is even more important. If we don't have the numbers, we got to keep moving. We got to make sure that our opponent can't bring all their numbers to bear. So we're, we're maneuvering as quickly as we can, as quickly as possible, avoiding very pitched engagements because our opponent has an obvious advantage when it comes to that. So we, if a want of numbers must be supplied by rapidity and marching, right? And our want of artillery by the character of the maneuvers. So if we don't have a long range capability or if we have less long range capability, and it's very important where we are and what we're doing where we are. You know, if we're dealing with 40K and one side has something long range and the other one doesn't, then we obviously want to be using cover. We want to position ourselves in such a way that we can have maximum effect on our opponent's army while still mitigating that artillery that's coming in. You know, it's a similar thing with Bell or with any sort of other uh, like medieval fighting sort of thing, if you have archers on the field, the maneuvers change. You know, you bring your shieldmen not just to the front, but also in a frontward facing thing, it changes the way that we, we expose the army, uh, how much we'll spread it out. These things are influenced by who's got more, the more archers, who's got more of a, of a long range capability. And uh, the inferiority of cavalry in the choice of positions. If we don't have mobility, if all we have is a smaller force, or not a smaller force, but a less mobile force, it is important that we choose a place that is less, uh, where that maneuver isn't going to have as much of an effect. For instance, anchoring our flank against the edge of the world or the edge of the board is a really good way to say, okay, I may not be able to anticipate your movement, but at least I can mitigate where you can move. I do this all the time with Toto and his Grey Knights, where I'll hug one wall and kind of move up that wall rather than spreading out because then I don't have a rear. I have an oblique, but I don't necessarily have a rear that he can come in and hit super hard because he can blink all over the field. And so because I know I lack mobility, I make sure that I've got a really good position to kind of make up for his very good mobility. Number 11. To operate along lines remote from each other and without communication between them is a fault which occasionally occasion, uh, ordinarily occasions a second. The detached column has orders only for the first day. Its operations for the second day depend on what happened to the main body. Thus, according to circumstances, the column wastes its time waiting for orders or it acts in random. It ought then to be adopted as a principle that the column of an army should always be kept united, so that the enemy cannot thrust himself between them. When for any reason this maximum is departed from, the the detached corps should be independent in their operations. They should move toward a fixed point at which they are to unite. They should march without hesitation and without new orders, and should be exposed to as, as little as possible to danger of being attacked separately. 
So what he's saying here is that it is better to try to keep our stuff together. We, this idea of sending out really long flankers, this happened again, this is a very common thing that I have done uh, on the 40K board and that I have ab absolutely done and seen on a field like Belagarth, which is to say that there's always the temptation of sending long range flankers. And if they are not long range enough, if they are not detached enough and fast enough, it is a waste of numbers. There is something exciting about being out there and about the maneuver, but there needs to be a dedicated hit and it needs to be something that is independent of the rest of the army and can function independent of the rest of the army. If it's a, a matter of needing them in one place at one time, if they are to be issued additional orders, that's not great because then they're waiting, then they're delaying. And that is a whole group of force that is not being used. And when we're trying to talk about the uh, cohesion of an army, trying to make sure that the things that do need to retain some sort of, of cohesion, that would be able to get orders back and forth, that they need to be close to each other. So if we're dealing with a, a situation on Bell with a larger field and we're trying to control our whole unit, splitting that unit kind of slightly to do like a pincer movement is a tricky thing because the further away it is, the more in danger that both sides are. So we need to make sure when we're doing something like that, that we can still support the other side if a hard hit comes. Because if we're too far apart, let's say both of us, my enemy and I, both have a, a value of two. And I split my value of two into one one. Well, if they're too far apart, then his two or their two can overwhelm one of my ones and then the other one way easier than you can two v two. So it's important then to make sure that both sides can support each other or that you have the numbers in the main army that you don't need to worry about that other detachment, that you can trust what they are going to do and that, that additional orders are not necessary. Okay, let's do one more and then we'll be done for this particular section. Number 12, an army should have but a single line of operations, which it should carefully preserve and should abandon only when compelled by imperious circumstances. We know where we're going to be. We know uh, where we need to go. And protecting that is important. And again, this isn't something that is necessarily found overly in the wargaming that, that we're going to do. But it is something that is extremely important in warfare. We need to be able to communicate with the back line and we need to be able to get supplies up. And so making sure that that's established, that that's not a point of confusion. Everybody knows where that is and it's guarded. So it can't be maneuvered on to abandon that. You don't want to go all willy nilly with that. Logistics are complicated and the easier we can make logistics, the more, uh, constants that we can have in logistics in terms of like where we are to go or what we are to do makes it so much easier. And logistics is where the army is at. It's how the army gets food. It's how the army stays warm. It's how the army has ammunition. Logistics are important. I think I've stressed that to death over the least, these last 95 episodes, but I think that's where we're going to end today. So next episode, we're going to start off with the third maxim or the, I'm sorry, not the third maxim. We're already far past that 13, 13th maxim. But I appreciate you all tuning in today, and I hope this is going to be a nice little break from, from Klauswitz before we dive back into it. And also, spoiler alert, there might be a return of a particular beloved cast member of the Art of Wargaming. You have not heard from Oni in a long time, and there is a good chance that he will be joining us again soon. So, make sure that you've got that one marked in your book too. I'm looking very much 
uh, to having my friend be back on here. But th I, I appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll get back to these maxims next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm -hmm.